Wait for it. Wait for it. And we're live. Hey, are you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans? It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just a couple of nerdy veterans and one chaos coordinator geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guests introduce themselves. So first we have, because we're using the alphabet, see, I can I can do the alphabet. Brian Thomas Schmidt, can you introduce yourself, please, sir? You know what? Nobody's ever told me I come first in the elephant. Usually it's my last name, and I'm last. Anyway, um, Brian Sh- Thomas Schmidt. I write uh, everything from uh, thrillers and uh, mysteries to uh, uh, space opera and uh, a little bit of romance in there every once in a while. And uh, my uh, my best known books at the moment are probably the stuff I've done for Predator, Aliens, and uh, Jonathan Mayberry's uh, Joe Ledger, as well as the Larry Korea Monster Hunter uh, International series. But I have two number one best selling novels, including Shortcut, which is hard sci-fi, my most recent novel, and Simon Says in my John Simon thrillers. All right. Well, first, let's just clear this up, sir. I don't care how many times you say it. Alien versus Predator does not count as a romance novel. You know, I hate to differ with you, man. I'm telling you, <laughs> you haven't you well, haven't literally written me. sex scenes between those characters. I'm <laughs> I mean, it's classic enemies to lovers. That's right. And this criticism coming from a guy who once wrote dinosaur porn just doesn't hold up with me. Well, first off, sir, they were yetis, not dinosaurs. <laughs> Let's get it right. And it was no written, so we can't talk about that. I did sign a few NDAs. But it okay. pays for my first right. edit, so we're just going to move on. <laughs> All right, next we have Mr. James J.E. Pittman. Hey, everybody. You may remember me from my Felix Chance series. Uh, that's still going. Third volume will be out soon. And I have a new series that I'm writing now called Pandora Squad. It is science fiction action with the dash of the military. So, you know, we got all kinds of crazy stuff going on. All right, all right, all right. Next we have Mr. John Olson. Hi, how are you doing? I'm John M. Olson. Uh, I write primarily science fiction, but I've also written a fantasy trilogy. Uh, when you get to short stories, I'm just scattered all over the place. That's where I like to experiment. But my most recent release is in the Four Horsemen universe, Foiled Ambition. See if I can get a good angle there. And so Mark might actually recognize that one. Uh, yay. Uh, and I have my Polecat Protocol uh, trilogy, which is my hard-ish science fiction uh, series that uh, the last book came out about a year ago. Nice. Next, we have Mr. Mark Wandry. Me? Yeah, you. Unless there's another Mark where I can run it. <laughs> Only one I'm aware of. Uh, I'm primarily known for the Four Horsemen universe. I was the original creator and then... Uh, co-creator with Chris Kennedy and I write under Chris Kennedy Publishing. Started off with a series of four books, and I think we're at 87 or 88 right now. Uh, Mr. Olson falls somewhere right in that category near the end. He's a welcome uh, addition to the crew and uh, a spectacular addition, I might add. I've also written Zombie Apocalypse. Uh, I had a series in that. I have a series of space opera that I originally started writing with actually many years ago. First one published, I think, in 2007. And last but not least, I'm just finishing up now my first uh, kind of techno thriller that I really haven't announced yet. So I guess I just did announce it. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. so yeah, Chris said I was volume number 92. Nice. Oh, counting anthologies. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. 
So the next part of the introduction, dear listener, dear viewers, how we found them. Uh, so we've met all, all this collection of guests through the various author spaces where we hang out, with the one exception being uh, Mr. Pittman. Uh, he hooked up with Garber doing something degenerate at a bar, but we're not allowed to talk about that because this is a family-friendly oh. show. So I'm just going to say, you know, they, they teach us about bourbon, and, and that's why we like James. Well, I just want to know why I wasn't invited. I'm just saying. I wasn't either. I, mean, <laughs> I, was told not to I don't think we had met yet, Brian. Yeah, I know. Oh, I just, you know what? Let me just say, Nick, it's nice to see you back up and on your feet, buddy. Yeah, me too. I walk, I walk like an ATST now, but other than that, I'm. I'm yeah, you're walking, one. brother. That's what matters. Yeah. All right. Now, no yeah, she's going to stab him if he doesn't. She will. <laughs> All right. And so. Uh, before we get started, we're going to do the uh, obligatory religion questions, and we're going to start with you, Mr. John. Star Wars, right. Star Trek, or Firefly? I think I'm going to have to go with Firefly on this one. Uh, I was crushed that it only lasted the one season, and I'm horrified at the thought of anyone trying to reboot it. Okay, that's fair. And Mark, what about you? Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Uh, would have originally been Star Wars. That's kind of a lost cause now. Then it would have been Star Trek, which is even more of a lost cause now, with a couple of holdouts, actually. Lower Decks is pretty good. Um, but really, Firefly is very quintessential. Once you get past flying cows in space, it's a great series. I mean, yeah. Oh, Star Wars gave us flying wells. Star Trek was the space whales, I thought. Yeah, and don't forget the... Uh, TNG when they were flying like the the, the space hit no, that was actually that was tossed the space hippies forgot about that one. Can't okay. the space hippies. All right, and then we have the because we are polytheistic Game of Thrones, The Wheel of Time, or Chronicles of Narnia. Mark, you get to go first this time. Game of Thrones, the book, the stupid TV series. But then again, he's never going to finish the book, so you know <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> Okay, that's fair. And what about you, John? Brandon Sanderson's warming up in the wings. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm actually watching the Wheel of Time uh, season two right now, and eh, I'm not too excited about that one. Uh, so if you're talking about just the classic literature, I think I'm going to have to go Narnia. Okay. Yeah, Narnia. And uh, finally, because we are civilized here on the Blasters and Blades mm -hmm. podcast, Coffee or tea, and how do you take it, Mark? Tea, real gray, hot, but with heavy whipping cream and a significant amount of uh, Splenda mixed in with it. So I'd probably be thrown off the Enterprise for that. <laughs> what about you, John? I think you may end up calling me a heretic, but I really have to go with cocoa instead. Okay. Now, I'm from Utah. You've got the whole religious thing, no coffee, no tea. So there you go. Cocoa is where it's at. Nothing wrong so with no coffee with your weather up there. Cocoa is allowed. Okay, good to know. So forever in Utah, we'll, we'll take notes. Yeah, but you do need to allow for uh, like, like whipped cream with sprinkles. Yeah, you have to get oh. it done right. Oh, he lost me at the sprinkles. The rest of it I was in for, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, if you want to send your hate mail to John for his sauce, links are in the show notes. <laughs> All right, oh, that, that's nothing compared to putting peeps in uh, the cocoa. Wait, Ooh. you do that? Ooh. 
Yeah, that, that's where the hate mail would come from. It's that one. Yeah, you get to watch them melt. Know, there's a bonus in that. Yeah, you get to watch them melt. Marshmallows aren't big enough. Flavor. You got to have a beep in there. <laughs> <laughs> wow, and I, I feel sane right now. Thank you guys. I appreciate this. I feel like the normal one. This is new. To be to All be right. fair, what else are you going to do with peeps that's worthwhile? Let's be realistic. I mean, there's not you know. Throw them in the trash. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. All right. Well, so I'll we'll get them for me every year and lets them sit out and dry for about two or three weeks first, so that they're properly cured. Oh. Oh. And then have to be crunchy. Aged peeps. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> All right, we're going to move right on to the topic of hard science fiction. So first, we're going to start with the definition. And like always, to keep it simple, we grab it real quick from the wiki. Obviously, you know, do with that source what it may, but it does link to its own um, notes. So we, we link to the wiki link. But hard science fiction is a category of science fiction characterized by a concern for scientific accuracy and logic. The term was first used in print in 1957 by P. Schuller-Miller in a review of John Campbell's Islands of Space in the November issue of Astounding Science Fiction. The complementary term soft science fiction formed uh, by an analogy to hard science fiction first appeared in the late 1970s. The term is formed by analogy to the uh, popular distinction between hard, natural, and soft social sciences uh, in academia, although there are examples generally considered as hard science fiction, such as Isaac Asimov's Foundation series built on mathematical sociology, science fiction critic Gary Westenfall argues that neither term is part of the rigorous taximony. Instead, they are approximate ways of category stories that reviewers and commenters have found useful. So that is uh, the, a general definition of hard sci-fi. You guys have anything you disagree with or agree with on that? I think it's a good starting place. <clears throat> I've never heard the term soft sci-fi until today, but hey, you know, roll with punches. Right? Uh, soft sci-fi is kind of a all-encompassing term. I have heard the term, and I'm actually pretty much a purist when it comes to hard sci-fi. They don't have some core scientific conceit that the story depends on. It's not science fiction, but in hard sci-fi, I like to see some real science as a core part of the story. I mean... You know, you're always going to extrapolate. So, I mean, I think people people just look at it with different. That's the the problem with any genre definition is everybody's kind of got their own definition. So it's all kind of general and and uh, and uh, all encompassing of depending on what your mood is. Certain readers like certain things, and there you go. So, is there anything you would add to that definition? Not not really, because I I, I respect my fellow authors and their work. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there. I think it's always going to be more of a spectrum than a hard and fast. Here's this area and here's exactly. this area. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So what is it you think that makes hard science, uh, people like hard science fiction? The extrapolation and kind of having it grounded in reality. So it's yeah. like, <clears throat> take what we have now and just like, think about it, man. It's like, okay, well, what if we did this? What if, this actually panned out. How would this develop? It's kind of a, a mental logic problem that it scratches some kind of itch for people, I think. Well, the, the, great, the great joy of science fiction, I think, is the what if. The what if is a big part of why we have speculative fiction in the first place. So, but for me, you know, there's a certain kind of, of grounding in reality you get when you've used real elements of some kind whether it's science or other things that 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 people i think i, I some people in particular really 
connect with. So I, I'd have to agree with Jay on that. I think I think having that element and having the the possibility that it could really happen uh, adds a certain level of tension that that some people really enjoy. Yeah, I think one thing that's a differentiator is how many uh, levels of secondary and tertiary effects you are taking into account. If you give that what if out front, what are the side effects of it and how deeply do you delve into that? And yeah. so all of this sets up a really nice environment in which you can do your typical story of you put a character in a setting with a problem. They can be based on uh, some really deep thought on how the world is really working. Yeah. It's basically the ultimate rabbit hole. You know, you start with something they can relate to, and then they just start investigating and just fall down the rabbit hole. How many people have, you know, fallen down wiki holes or, you know, YouTube channels where they just keep watching and watching and expanding? Well, you know, if you go far enough into the future with science fiction, all it is is the same thing. It's that speculative process playing out over and over, iteration after iteration. Well, that's what science is in in essence. Science right. is exploration of these questions of what if and where will it take us. Absolutely. So I think that's the nice part about it as well is looking at what, you know, if, if you just went this way instead of this way, even though we know we can't go that way technically based on physics right now, what if we did and what would happen is a, the basis of a good hard sci-fi story. I mean, it's, you know, just as well as a good hard science fiction story. Agreed. <laughs> I was talking Very about it everything. It was beautiful. The most coherent sentence you've ever heard in our one year. So <laughs> if, if we start with the premise by that example of the what if being something we don't think we can do now, does that automatically disqualify it from hard science fiction? Because you're starting with the presupposition that the impossible is possible. Well, I think in a lot of cases, you have to have something in the story that either we don't do now or we may never be able to do. Um, but as you get more and more of those, you get more into the science fantasy instead. Uh, like there's a lot of hard sci-fi out there that has some kind of faster than light travel. If you say, okay, that's my carve out exception. Everything else has to obey all of the same rules that the rest of the universe does. Uh, that's why I tend to think of this uh, more of uh, a spectrum than anything is because you can have those little carve outs saying, okay, let's say it's the real universe except for this one weird thing that right. theoretically might be able to happen. Right. If you have the... Go ahead. Oh, no, it's okay. I was just going to say, I think that, that hard, hard sci-fi tends to adhere more to the possible in, in that regard, even though you're always throwing in those elements. But I mean, start, look at Star Trek. Star Trek had elements of science in it, and there were some very real, interesting science, and we're living out some of that science now, things that didn't exist that they you know, invented yeah. that, that we walk around with every day, like the, 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 the communicator I'm holding in my hand you're doing this podcast, all of those kind of things. So, um, I, you know, I think it's just it's just a variance of degree, like uh, like John's talking about. So, if we use the example of FTL, there are mathematical formula that say it's possible. Obviously, it's an energy issue, but it's yeah. what, within the realm of possibility, as opposed to um, I'm trying to think of something that might not qualify. Like I don't know, using the force. Like obviously, that that takes you out of hard sci-fi. There's no scientific backing for it. Ignore the midichlorians. But FTL, well, 
we, we, we've done mathematical formula that show how you could do it. Now there's obviously practicalities with it, or it would be just modern storytelling. But that's where religion comes into it in a sense, because, or spirituality might be a better term. Because the, the Star Wars is a space fantasy. There's a lot of elements of the religion to the whole Jedi thing and, and a spirituality. And so I think you have to take into account um, those elements are part of a lot of world building in many cases as well, um, whether they're based on anything we know or not. And that's, uh, that's a different animal than science in a lot of ways, but there's similarities. Lots of theories lots of you know propositions and all of that about you know what's true and what's not it, it similar principles in some ways but different i have a pretty complicated theory on the whole thing myself we've got time go for it i think all hard sci-fi tends to gravitate towards fantasy non-hard sci-fi and all fantasy sci-fi tries to gravitate the other direction it's a natural outcome of either genre you make the hardest, crunchiest science fiction you can come up with, and you have to throw a couple of MacGuffins in there and a couple of doodads to make it work right. And that temptation to start sneaking a few more things in there is almost impossible for writers and creators <laughs> to resist. And it works the same way the other way. You can take the most, you know, space, I mean, space wizards and everything in Star Wars, right? Yet they can't help sticking in some hard rules here and there about how things work and how things don't. Now, they went a lot less far than others, you know. Um, you could argue that Trek started out as pretty hard sci-fi. They did their best. And then they had more and more, you know, WYSIWYG moments. It's like, how does that work? Well, I don't know. Let's let's let's, let's, let's uh, remove the Heisenberg compensator. That's how we'll make that work. You know, uh, <laughs> they can't resist that. They want to do something so bad. It doesn't matter if it's completely scientifically ridiculous. They're going to do it anyway, you know, because you want to tell the story. And all of these ones are always kind of moving in each other's directions. Now, a lot of them tend to pull back eventually, but... You know, I, I, I'm one of those weird ones. I never got into the expanse. I had a hard time because their premise was hard science fiction. And we're going to inject blue shit in our veins so they can go faster. Really? How does that work? Um, you know, we all have our points. And we have hard times accepting stuff. And that's my crazy ass theory. You know, I don't think you're too far off there, uh, Mark. Uh, one thing I, I we talk about on a panel about... Uh, magic in space at a con I was at we kind of came down to the idea that it was like hard sci-fi or science fiction is kind of like the the methodology and the approach you take to the subject matter like you can have a totally quantifiable rigid system of magic you have to follow these exact calculation calculated rules and over and that's kind of scientific it's a scientific uh, sure. approach to an esoteric type phenomenon but you know it, it comes down to the mentality you take toward it you know are you analyzing it are you performing the scientific method on it testing hypothesis uh, after hypothesis seeing what works seeing what doesn't uh you know peer review your magic spell whatever you know it it just comes kind of down to a mentality sometimes and larry Cree is a wonderful example of that his yeah. hard magic series. He wrote hard fantasy. Absolutely. You know, yep. this is why I've never written fantasy because as soon as I try to start and develop a world build, I have to try to quantify everything. You know, how many juju beans does it take to cast a spell? All that sort of stuff. I want it all laid out and it doesn't lend itself to that. When Larry wrote hard magic, he quantified his magical system. 
is yep. part of what actually makes it enjoyable. He pulled off practically the impossible with it, which is why I still say it's his best work. You know, I hated to well, see that. A, from him. Yeah. He's using his accounting skills. <laughs> yeah. Pretty he's much. Good with, he's yeah, good with yeah. numbers. Larry's really good at that. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. I, but I think he, somebody dared him to write hard, ma- you know, uh, hard magic as opposed to hard science, and it friggin' did it. In I, reality, I the entire world has more true magic than the than the hard than the hard magic world does. You know, I mean, I think I heard him yeah. say on the Dojo podcast that it was rooted in a very bad panel at a convention that essentially <laughs> wound up in the same way. It was a dare to write a hard you know, hard fantasy well, system. Well, I think I think and other than Hollywood, way, other than Hollywood writers, I think most of us would probably ha- have reached that point where we realize any world building we do that there has to be an internal logic that will make sense for the reader up to a degree. Me, There's anyway. points where you don't, no. but your readers will crucify you if you don't, and because the readers really get into it. Hollywood has a bit of a separation from from that in the sense that they're with the economy that they work on, uh, they don't care as much if people don't, Pretty if much. people want to argue that point, but we don't work on that level. We want to be successful. We have to kind of meet certain standards. So everybody has to work in some kind of rigidness. It's just the degree. I think that it varies. Yeah. Um, the four horsemen universe reading. has one inviolate rule. One that's never been broken. Anybody who's written it or read it knows what that is. Now, John, you should know this. You wrote in it. <laughs> well, I know that there's a lot of rules. We were talking about the faster than light travel thing. And that I thought was really cool because it was laid out very specifically. This is how it works. And there's this one little sort of an exception here, but you can't use that because somebody else is going to. And so there are <laughs> yeah. all of these sorts of things like that. that I appreciate the having rules. the groundwork like that. It's anti-gravity. There's never been and never oh. will be. It's one thing that, because I consider it such a trope, and it's happened because of Hollywood, because it's expensive shooting zero G. So that's why you never have it in TV and movies, generally speaking. You know, uh, that's why it made uh, Gravity such an exceptional, you know, terrible movie in some ways, but exceptional in the fact that they did zero gravity really well. You know, that part was was cool. But yeah, that was my rule. Actually, it was no z- no zero gravity, no antimatter, and no artificial intelligence. Well, the, the two of them got went away because if you read the stories, you see why they went away. They never really were a rule. But any gravity, never. You know, I, I refuse. I refuse. Huh. Interesting. Hmm. I think that's one of the things that really makes things into that more crunchy, hard science fiction is when you have a set of rules and say, this is how this area works. Even if it's something that you're making up completely, if you've got those nice crunchy rules, it gives you a nice framework so that you can figure out, okay, now what can I do to play with that particular feature of this world to make it part of the story? Well, that's that's whatever rule you want, but don't break them for crying out loud. Yeah. Well, some people are really good at BSing up the terminology to the point where it's like, you know, unless you really are knowledgeable in that particular area that uh, you, you can't tell it's not real. And that's uh, a skill I admire. And, some and, you know, uh, some of us are a little more fly by night on that. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was reading a series where the author would interchangeably use terms that shouldn't have been like, like galaxy and star system. And it kind of... I, it made it so I had to turn off major portions of my brain to enjoy the story. <laughs> or intergalactic That's and intergalactic. <laughs> yeah. 
Next, you're going to criticize how long it took them to make the Kessel Run. <laughs> they actually managed to half explain that, I, I have to admit, in the long run. But, man, they had to twist it hard to make it happen. How did they explain <laughs> that? I don't know that I ever followed up on that one. It was the fact that they Just, had to travel a certain route to get there because of a high area of, like, black holes or something. Yeah, yeah, there's a systems. bunch of black holes. And that created a yeah. distance. Yeah, that's where the space whales come from, actually, was that. They were originally scouts there. So, you know, so if he hand did it in less than three power sections, means he cut the corners better than other people. You know, that was their experience. And survived. It was 12 parsecs. It's about like 1.21 gigawatts. You know, it's the same thing. They have to figure out a way to explain it at some point. Pull the lightning. He, I think he used the I think he used the DeLorean from Back to the Future secretly. He just doesn't want to tell anybody. That's at the heart of the Millennium right? Falcon. Exactly. <laughs> if you can fly out, you can fly into space too, right? I mean. Right. Was it? it was Lando's um, droid who had the charts, and then when the droid was destroyed, yeah, they kind of uh, they kind of retconned that actually. But you know what else? Yeah, Lando also got sleeps with his droid. So what can you say? Lando sleep with anything. I mean, maybe he used to be a marine. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> he's maybe, maybe <laughs> That would be a crossover event. Anyway. Let's move back <laughs> to the family-friendly territory. <laughs> so what are the parts that you really like about hard science fiction? It's grounded. It's uh, A lot of people who don't do science fiction actually like hard science fiction because it's more realistic to what they can express. You have less of the fantasy aspect. You know, There's no lightsabers. There's, there's no... Uh, you know, crazy gravity. There's no super uber power sources. You can't destroy entire planets, that kind of stuff. So it's easier to read. It's a gateway drug in some ways. Uh, Heinlein stuff was almost all hard science fiction. You know, very hard. It was all the orbital calculations and everything. Uh, well, that's where I cut my teeth. I, I'll, for, I'll give you an example. Uh, in uh, in Shortcut, which is, which is very hard sci-fi, I had several scientists working with me uh on on actual scientific papers to figure out where the real science was and where the line had to be when we had to go away from it so it stayed very realistic there's there's people that love that book that can't stand my john simon books and my john simon books are near future books and really the only things i've come up with that aren't real is a humanoid robot everything else is except for well the flying cars but we're almost there and and i there's a lot of drones and things and they stumble with that, even though it's otherwise a straightforward police procedural. They're like, "Oh, there's robots. I couldn't get into it." So, it, you know, I think I think people uh, people have their boundaries about what they can uh, what they can suspend disbelief over. And uh, and what's nice with some hard sci-fi is it's you know with near future shortcut because I stuck so close to NASA and all of that stuff. People can read it who wouldn't normally find it accessible, and I, that's what Mark's Mark's right. You know, some of those people really can get into it because of that. Yeah, I think that's a key point, though, Brian, because you can do all the research in the world, and we've all done a lot of research for a particular story, but even so, you still have to make it approachable. You can't go yeah. into really high mathematical detail, or you're going to lose ninety nine percent of your audience. Well. It depends, because Shortcut actually is a hard math book. Um, there's very real math. It's just that it's very well explained, because I had mathematicians that would talk people through it. And those who want to read the equations, they're there. Those who don't, it's written in such a way it's very accessible for people. So you don't have a lot of it, though. You, it's, the hard math is the core. Shortcut itself is a formula. 
it's it's at the core of it, but there's enough of it that people get that oh, there's something real here. And uh, you're right; some people are turned off by that, but others others uh, if you if you can uh, manage to find the right balance, I think can actually get from it. And I and I'll tell you flat out. I don't understand a damn thing about that math. <laughs> I wrote the book. I don't understand a damn thing. I had to have somebody else explain yeah. the basic math in the in, that there was like a child learning math in one scene. I, I was like, somebody else had to write that. Or tell me what to put. But you know, it's it, it's uh, it's fascinating when it when it works, and it's it's hard, it can be hard to pull off for sure. Yeah, one of the ways I solved that problem is my uh, uh, trilogy, the science fiction trilogy. I have an appendix at the back of each volume of the weird things I had to look up to get the story right, to get the science to work. Like I've got a, a little uh, blurb on orbital mechanics and how I got my timing right for if you gave yeah. this much altitude, your uh, period of your rotation would change by a certain amount. So all of those details... I had the information, and so I figured, yeah, I might as well put an appendix in here. And some people have written back to me saying, hey, that's a really cool appendix. I really like that. But that's something I could never have actually put into the story in the level of detail that I had to research. Yeah, I should have I done that with shortcuts. That would have been fun. That would have been that's fun. That's a good idea. That is a great idea. People like a properly cited and referenced uh, material. What made you decide to put that in there? I don't think I've ever seen a hard sci-fi actually do that. I read some. I can't remember what book I was looking at, but it had an appendix uh, that talked about something. And I thought, you know, I'm doing some research. I might as well put that in there. So I've got things like the orbital mechanics and microgravity versus free fall, uh, yeah. breathing per fluorocarbon. Uh, I even put in like Maslow's hierarchy of needs because there's a little bit of a psychological element to the story. So I just had a lot of fun putting the... Uh, back uh matter together for this thing because yeah, you know it, it it can work well david weber's the king of the appendices man he does it with all his military stuff and his honor harrington in particular and and always explains all the different things and the weapons and all the different stuff and, and they the people are crazy for it they love it so yeah he just because he can't help himself too but you know <laughs> well that's that's true he he doesn't know where else to put that stuff <laughs> That's a great way to do something like that. I mean, because you're, you're going to make your geeks happy beyond beyond words. And the people who are just reading the story are like, like yeah, I can skip over that stuff, you know? Yeah, well, I didn't. The only reason I actually didn't do it is because um, uh, there's a movie in development. And they wanted me to do a, a the making of book with all the science behind it. So I was saving it all for that. But, I, you know, I kind of think about it now. I wish I had put some of that in there because it's, it's very interesting. But I still have those half half real, half fake science, like, 30 or 40 science memos that were written for the book. That was, it was a, I mean, the, the guy wrote it like real memos. It was pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Nice. All right, Nick, you had a question. Yeah. Uh, we talked about what you liked about the genre. What do you not like about it? The math. <laughs> <laughs> Research, getting it wrong. Okay, touche. Yeah, yeah, one, semester, one semester of algebra and I'm done. I have scientists that I email if I have real questions. And anybody who's read my space stuff knows it's, it's actually pretty good. It's kind of sad I don't write more of it. But the Four Horsemen fans aren't crazy about that. They want next crashing into each other. They don't what? want shoot, chip shooting each other. But I, I literally have dozens of questions. I'm firing at my, my core group that answer questions for me, like in my Patreon. I'm like, look, this ship's doing this, and that ship's doing that. And how many Gs do I have to pull to make them catch each other? And, you know, they just answer the question. So I just pop it in. <laughs> I, don't that, I, think, I think my big dislike is gobbledygook for the sake of gobbledygook. 
All right. There's a lot of people. If you're going to make up words and you're going to make up terms to lend it a sci-fi feel, fine. But make them integral to it and make them so that they make sense in context no matter where they are. Right. You just throw that stuff in there just to act like you know something and you think you're pulling it off. You're not. Usually you're not. But I that's my pet peeve. There's people that just put that in there and it's supposed to be confusing. Ah, no, do the work, man. Make it make sense More so people can understand this. Yeah, make it yeah. accessible. Confusing is one of those things you want to avoid at all costs. Absolutely. You don't want people to get bored. You don't want them to get confused. Yep. Yeah. Those are two good uh, commandments right there when you're writing any type of story, whether it's sci-fi fantasy or, or the funny well, books that all, I do. All the near-future stuff that's coming out for, like, you know, science fiction, military science fiction, hard science fiction, that all linked together. The military side, all of us are watching in kind of amazement and horror as we're seeing how near futures military combat is completely turning itself upside down as you've got a it bunch is. of weaponized autism geeks out there who's strapping bombs on the DGI drones and sending them into combat where we didn't think that was possible. Really, really how does your platoon deal with the fact that you've got an idiot out there that has a high school education who's using a drone to bomb you at the same time? You, know, you can't jam everything because your own comms are jammed. We're, we're entering an era of the drone cold war practically. You know, how do you fight we this? We really thing? are. No, yeah, I don't think the different. warlock system would stop that, which is what we had in 05 in Iraq to uh, create like a protective field where if anyone was trying to, like a you know, remote multispectral jammer, basically kind of an active response yeah. system. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it will either you because know. they're coming up with so many different ways to handle this kind of stuff from relays to simple like commercialist frequencies, literally hopping on the back of an FM frequency that you wouldn't think about jamming. You know, it's it's scary, really. You think about it. Yeah, the possibility. It's the same thing with. That's one of the reasons that you know I always tell people, with AI, you know, with AI, it's the the scariest part of it is that they don't have any they don't have any parameters for it, and uh, Keeble bend the bends the parameters. That's the scariest part for me. I think that's the same thing. I'm editing a book right now by a guy that's uh, basically about people who decide that that uh, the way the world is going, they don't like it, so they're going to change it by sending out drone armies to, to assassinate people. The drones end up taking on their own control of themselves and talking to themselves and take over and then go out of control. It's kind of a fascinating... Uh, this guy's he works for a, one of those top-secret organizations in the government. Yeah, so he's actually building stuff, this shit, probably. Yeah, it's great. yeah, some of this shit, I'm like, <laughs> holy shit, does that really exist? You know, and I can't really tell you. And I'm like, yeah, well, that means it does. <laughs> we're like two <laughs> steps away from that. We, we are. Got landmines, we got landmines that can talk to each other and um, mm -hmm. deconflict enemy versus friendlies. So... And then you tell us things is, like Starlink to control it all. Yep. Yeah. Oh, we're we're pretty close to, to Judgment Day as far as like the, the Terminator universe. You know, Skynet's yeah. gonna go online pretty soon. You know, it's and it probably well, it's gonna be quickly. It's it's yeah. telling that it's telling that instead of the war robot robots, the first thing we got was the sex robots. But however, we're headed that way. <laughs> yeah, I mean there's a correlation between sex and violence. I mean there's yeah. Gotta take care of the soldiers the so they can go fight. <laughs> well, That's how it starts. Next thing you know, they're taking up arms. <laughs> While we reel it back into the family-friendly territory, we're going to pause oh, for I'm a minute. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. While we chill for the man. Alien Days <laughs> is a multi-author anthology with thrilling tales of aliens, invasions, artificial intelligence, friendship, deceit, and extinction. This combination of stories makes it a must-read for science fiction short story fans. 
This anthology features Nebula and Dragon Award nominees, Amazon bestsellers and award winners, alongside rising stars in the science fiction genre. Let the authors take you on adventures through dystopian worlds and far-flung planets that will stretch your imagination. Welcome to Alien Days. All right, thank you for sticking with us through that uh, commercial interlude. So we've talked about the good and the ugly of the genre. So uh, Stabby, you had an idea in the in the comments that she sent me. Uh, so do you guys have favorite hard sci-fi movies? I mean, obviously there's the iconic Martian, but what else are you guys enjoying in that realm? Hmm. Yeah, that's a tough one. I don't watch an awful lot of movies, and so I may not be really the best to answer that. Um, Maybe shows, series? The movie Life. That's a really good example. It's extremely hard sci-fi. I mean, take the alien life out of it. That's you know, the MacGuffin. Everything has to have a MacGuffin. The, the theory of taking the first actual samples that are kept intact back from Mars and setting them in space is not a bad idea. I mean, really, we don't know what to expect, you know. Uh, until you put boots on Mars or something that's smart enough to take proper samples, we've never had any. You know, we've scratched the surface. We've never been below, what, 20 centimeters? That's as deep as we've ever gone there. I mean, literally, you get into the – they estimate there's as much as uh, 600 billion acre feet of water underneath the surface of Mars. I mean, they had oceans. They're still there. They're just down deep enough that they're not going to melt easily. They're not going to um, – shit. Uh, sorry. Um, subject – what the heck's the word? Sublimate. Um, sublimate. Sub you see, I'm a science fiction writer, right? Yeah, I got that nailed. Um, hey, anyway, we'll so course, <laughs> all, all the components are there. Do, do we want to really take that and pop the pop the cork here on Earth and see what crawls out of it? We we just don't know. Um, it, yeah. It's an interesting story that way. It, it kind of gets into the area of kind of some fantasy in places, especially how they portray the International Space Station. You know, it's this glitzy wall to wall sealed. Sealed cocoons, they sleep in and all that, but it was fun, you know. And you got to see Ryan Reynolds die horribly, so that was kind of a bonus. Go into the same yeah. territory with The Martian, it kind of crosses over because there's book and movie, but um, yeah. I think they did a lot of things very well with it. Yep, yep. yeah, yeah. And, and the bad was the bad was relatively limited one for plot, you know, the idea that you could have a wind on Mars enough to knock, to, to knock even anything over. Um, and the other issue was the, what the phylates or whatever it is in the soil, they didn't properly cover it, which he did in the book, but they kind of cut out in the movie. Um, yeah, that's the thing about the best that. Sorry, guys, by the wild. Sorry about that, Mark. There's that's, that's, okay, one the, that's one of the things about that. I was actually the first editor on that book and edited it before it ever uh, sold to Crown and did all that. One of the, oh, I mean, the realities of he really did a good job with the science and hard science, it, making it accessible mm -hmm. was what we worked on most, and he. Also, you know, uh, the the voice of the one weakness that that existed that they did fix in the movies is that all the characters sounded like Mark Watney. Everybody sounded alike, and that was a problem because that voice. It's a problem, and it's a benefit. The voice in that book is extremely strong. He had the voice. He nailed it. He knew what it was, mm -hmm. and it was very compelling. However, when you've got some of the people in NASA, they fixed it in the movie, like I said. You got some of the NASA press people in there you know, uh, dropping F-bombs left and right. It's like, yeah, those people aren't going to go out and do that in public. They are family-friendly. That's, that's the whole point of NASA. You know, all these kind of things. So a lot of that, they you know, they end up making it more accessible in the movie and, and the actors brought all those elements. 
but yeah, he did that. He did that very well. And and yeah, there were there were certainly some things in the movie that they they stretched more. They changed the ending. I still like the book's ending better than I like the movie's ending. But uh, yeah, he know, he probably... rolled the he rolled the crawler in the crater at the end. That was a big thing they cut out and stuff yeah. like that. And uh, you know the the author um, Andy Weir. I can't remember. Weird, thank you. You can tell he's such a huge NASA guy, which is kind of cool by the complete lack and missing of SpaceX anywhere in the story. You know, even though they were already coming up big when he wrote that, I'm like, I remember I watched the movie first time. I'm like, why don't you use the Falcon Heavy? Why is that so hard about getting that up there? He's got the Delta V to put that on. And, and <laughs> yeah, he was. But, but you, know, you know what? Yeah. That book, the other thing about that, though, is that, you know, he posted it online and built a community around it before it ever you know, before it ever came to me to be developed into something that could be printed. And then, of course, the print thing took off even more. So that book, you know, yeah. that's a case of, of of he probably wrote it and did most of that development before SpaceX really hit the scene. Things developed so fast. That's true. He may have been working that's, on it 20 years ago. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of the yeah. the nature of how we where we are now and where we were. I mean, when I wrote Shortcut, um, you know, there was only SpaceX was the only competitor to NASA. And the book just came out due to various reasons, and I'm like, man, it really feels like I really, uh, I really missed a bunch of stuff because I didn't mention all these other things. But I mean, that's how fast things have really changed in the in the space travel thing. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I would love to have a conversation. I'm completely prepped for that with with Les Johnson. I got sideswipe. Help me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Les helped me. Les helped me on that book. Actually, Les was a lot of help on that book. I'm not surprised. Les is great. I, he's one. He's on my contact list too. Him, Stephanie yeah. Osborne, a few others. Yeah. 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 I really enjoyed uh, Hugh Howie's Silo adaptation lately. That was. I think they did a really good job with oh, that. Oh yeah. That's a good one. Too. I also like his. Uh, one of my favorite books of him from him is Beacon Twenty Three, The Lighthouse Keeper in Space. That I thought was really good. I got to read that. I like lighthouses. I should read that. But yeah, I actually haven't watched the silo yet because I need to read the series. I always like to read the series before I watch the TV show and have it ruined. Right. <laughs> well, the the adaptation uh, it has uh, Howie's seal of approval for accuracy and also yeah they I I think they kept the heart of it. Right and the details right, and it was a very well executed. Where are they showing that one? I don't think I've heard. That's about on them. Apple. It's, it's on, on Apple TV. Yeah. Apple TV Plus. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Did anybody watch the uh, the movie ISS about the uh, world war breaks out on the planet and then now the uh, Russian yeah. and American astronauts are fighting on the ISS? I haven't seen that. No. I, I, know. I mean, it's that come out? modern. Uh, it came out this year, I believe, or is well, it, where is that? Is it's, that Netflix, uh, or where is it from? I will track that down. Okay, Maybe well, I'll track that down. I'm not sure if that would count as hard SF because it's literally set now when we fictional a war, or if that would be just modern. Well, that's, that's one of those things about, you You were talking about hard sci-fi movies. Uh, I'm hard put, other than The Martian, to to think of a movie that, that, that shows that kind of respect for science. It's pretty rare. I mean, there's a lot of interesting hard sci-fi ideas, but... Getting the science right, one. other than two thousand one, a space odyssey, which had some of that, but even then they went off the rails toward you know with some things. So it's it's hard because because uh, it's just not a primary concern of Hollywood when they do these things. I'd have to verge into TV, and that would be for all mankind, which has done a fantastic job. For all mankind, it's a fascinating kind of take on mm -hmm. all that. Yeah, 
it, it is because they, they've tried to keep to some realistic scenarios as much as they can. And, you know, anybody who's our age, some of us, some of our age anyway, knows that we watched, you know, Land on the Moon and we watched multiple trips. And then NASA just said, ah, never mind, we're not going to do that anymore. Yeah, I mean, that yeah, was yeah. kind of the American public mostly. But and for all mankind, if you haven't seen it, the whole premise is the Russians beat us to the moon. Uh, because we took a, they, they didn't have the one scientist didn't die the one who was integral to their project and the uh, N1 was successful and they beat us there and all of a sudden then the space race never really stopped it then became a one step next one step next we had a lunar calling we had a lunar and then we went to Mars and they've been pretty careful not to be crazy about anything uh, they really only barely have fusion power now and the story I think is up to like 1999 from the last season so it's it's pretty interesting. They try hard. The space travel looks pretty realistic. There was a, one scene in a couple of seasons ago where two people have to get 50 feet outside the lunar habitat without spacesuits. So they wrap their entire bodies with duct tape and they die oh, yeah. badly. But it works long enough for them to do what they're doing. So now there's statues of them. But it's a pretty hideous scene to watch and pretty accurate, too, from what I've learned about in vacuum, having never directly experienced it, of course, but thank God. I actually had to research that for something that I was doing. <clears throat> There's a NASA engineer who was actually on the ground, but he was in a vacuum chamber and yes. his suit lost integrity. And uh -huh. so he went into a hard vacuum and they rushed all the air in. And he said that the last thing he remembered was his spit boiling. So, of course, mm -hmm. I had that in my story. I've read that same okay. account. That was a late Apollo era, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, you know, they can't just turn a valve in instant air. It took like 20 seconds to repressurize. And you know, like you said, he was unconscious in five. It just did not take long at all. Yeah. He's lucky. He was very lucky. Absolutely. Yeah, I think his only lasting effect was his sense of taste was gone for a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. Uh, only I a think couple he had weeks? A, wow. <laughs> his, his eardrums were blown out, too. And I think he had a little bit of lung damage, but he was smart enough to exhale as it happened. He remembered his training at the last minute and it saved his life, basically. You know, if he tried to hold it in, it probably would have came out his nose. His lungs, I mean, not just his air. <laughs> that would be unpleasant. Yeah, um, now vacuum is very uncool. We're not designed for it, look, not at his, all. His lungs are outside his nostrils. Can we put those back in somehow? Should we shove them in or what? <laughs> not only are they outside, but they're also inside out, outside of his nostrils. That's just that's, that's bad. That that I'm, someday I'm going to use that image in my story. I can't. Uh, that's that's just too colorful and uh, and gritty for for me to resist. At some point, I got to find a way to use it. You're welcome. You can send me royalties at Mark. At yes, you're up. You're right, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> How can you tell I'm an indie? Give me, give me, some, give me some cheddar out of this, will you? <laughs> so, do you have any tropes aside from the tech side of things? Do you have any tropes that you that you really love to see in hard sci-fi? In hard sci-fi specifically? Yes. I love to see. Realistic fusion power? Pretty damn rare. It's usually the MacGuffin. It just works. It's fantastic. It's awesome. You never have any problems with it. You know, it would be... Oh, um, that movie with uh, the, the sleeper ship going to Alpha Centauri and they wake up and the guy, like, you know, basically kind of rapes the girl. I mean, you know, passenger and all that. That's it. One of the worst portrayals of fusion I've ever seen. It's right there, and there's a glass window looking right into the fusion chamber. I'm like, hold it. It's like, you know, 100 million degrees in there. How does that work exactly? You almost Oh, it's transparent it. aluminum from Scotty. Star Trek. <laughs> oh, that explains it. No, it's stupid me. No. 
the difference is they forgot to write out the formula. That's all. Right? <laughs> On the glass. How do you they know he busy. didn't create the stuff? They were too busy talking to the computer and it wouldn't answer. Uh, computer? 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 Hello, computer. <laughs> Hello, computer. We cramped a mouse too. Perfect. <laughs> Use the keyboard. Oh, the keyboard. How quaint. How quaint. Well, it is really as long as you remember to invert the polarity of your dilithium crystals, you're good. That is a good field trip, though. Um, for work, I went to the Savannah River site that treats uh, nuclear waste and turns it into glass for storage. And I was looking through a window into this big canyon that they have a crane in, all kinds of stuff where they do that processing. And cool. the window I was looking through had two plates of thick glass with about a foot of oil between them. Mm, so yeah. it was actually safe to look into this irradiated environment. The gamma rays. That's excellent. And so it, it's really things, fun to see that kind of stuff up close and personal. One of the things on my bucket list is to see uh, uh, Chernyankov radiation from a reactor operating. I, I just would like to see it myself someday. I'm completely fascinated by the idea. It's kind of stupid, but it's one of those things, you know. Uh, and now, of course, after September 11th, almost all the reactors operating, but you sort of can't get anywhere near anymore. So I might probe with that one in my list still. Well, you may be able to see that at something like a small university level uh, mm -hmm. testing yeah. reactor. I know that mm -hmm. a friend of mine at the University of Utah had uh, seen uh, the Cherenkov glow in that reactor at one time. I don't even know if they've even got the thing anymore. Yeah, there's a low power one in Idaho. Is that the one where the very first one they ever put online is still there? Is that uh, it was the first one to ever make power and actually have it available? And I think it's still a, re a, re a research reactor there, but we're getting way off course here. So I'm surprised Mr. Hanley hasn't wrapped us in yet. No, I'm just enjoying still, the conversation. It fits within what we're talking about. This is true. That's what generates these ideas for writers and things like that. Just, oh. Huh. I'll yeah, and the more way. of these cool ideas you use, the uh, more you lean toward the hard side of science fiction. Mm -hmm. And it's to a point where you don't have to rely quite so much on the tropes that set an expectation in someone's head if you can tell them up front, yeah, we're just using reality plus these couple of little things here. I think it's an easier mindset to get into than having to specify how an entire universe works. Well, like it I does. It the does do your does. world building for you, which is kind of nice. It does your world building for you, which saves a lot of time. But also, you, you, you save that suspension of disbelief issue that we were talking about sometimes, too, because all of that, you know, it's, it's, it's so real. It's uh, close enough that people just buy in. You don't have to spend as much time selling them on the concepts. I had a conversation with somebody about something that just killed them about science fiction is you, you watch them come in, they dock their ship and open the door and they all climb in. And then you watch it happen on the ISS with a dragon and it's a three hour process, just getting docked and getting everything done, waiting to open the door. You can fall asleep and wake up next morning and they're not done. And that's the reality of it, whereas opposed to the science fiction trope, even in hard science fiction, is it takes seconds, you know, oh, what is dock and open the door first? It doesn't work that fast. You got to actually be kind of careful. Or you end up like having your spit boil like that one guy. You know, it's a uh, <laughs> vacuum is not your friend. <laughs> yeah, nineteen sixty-five at the Johnson Space Center. That's when that accident happened. Well, yep. That's actually wow. early Apollo. I thought it was late Apollo. Okay. Yeah, well, I, actually, I thought it was seventies too. 
that the wasn't even that we, Apollo then. That was actually Gemini. Holy crap. So do you guys have a favorite tech that you like to see in science, hard sci-fi? In hard sci-fi. Um, yeah. Guns instead of lasers and stuff. That's always fun <laughs> to see. You know, where they figure it out for space. You don't see it very often. They usually have to have the ray guns and everything. Well, you know, bullets will probably still work just fine. I like how Firefly dealt with that. They just stuck it in one of their, you know, spacesuits. <laughs> mm -hmm. well, one of the things that I really like to see done well is travel time, whether you're talking bullets or light beams for lasers. Uh, yeah, you may be able to shoot something accurately that's uh, way out there, but if even if you're using a laser, if it's far enough away, it can move before your laser beam gets there. And so yep. taking those sorts of things into account, I think is really interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think some of the when you whenever you can find a way to use the real aspects of that and and, you know, a lot of people go say, oh, it kills the suspense. It needs to be instantaneous. No, what actually makes it more suspenseful is the whole twists and turns you have to make to make that work in your story. It's really interesting. It can it can it can take you interesting directions to make that believable that they have any suspense and all of that. You know, I mean, in real, it's hard. People are so used to the instant gratification we get in the movies and. You know, the idea of somebody sitting there, well, I, now i got to wait five hours and see if the bomb actually hits, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah, it's you know. akin to, like, uh, uh, submarine movies, you know, when they launch the torpedoes. Yeah, those yeah, are yeah. probably some of the most intense scenes because they're trying to do trajectory yeah. and angle and all that. And I, I had to deal with this in my military days as a, as a sniper. It's like you have to, you have to guess. You have to swag it, you know, your scientific wild-ass guess where that target's going to end up, even though you have the mathematics and you've already set your, uh, you know, your, your windage and elevation, it's still yeah. a swag to hit that target as it's moving, you know, cause then you, you have to add factors you don't know for sure. Okay. Well, and walking I think, afoot, you know, I think back to war games, which is not, not necessarily the most scientific, uh, as far as hard sci-fi, but the suspense of it was built around all these things happening that you never really saw on screen that were going mm -hmm. on, and the suspense of these people watching and waiting to see what would happen and all of that, trying to figure it out. I mean, that was a that was a big part of it. Uh, that's how those those moments. I had some mission control scenes in Shortcut, for example, and the challenge was how do you keep it interesting when you're going back and forth and they're doing all that without getting buried in gobbledygook and all that, you know. Uh, you have to come up with interesting ways to create that intention of drama between the people for various reasons, and it it, it pushes you to another level. Well, it forces you to be more creative too, because um, exactly, it, it makes me think of that scene from. And it's totally unrelated to the subject, but it just makes me think of the scene anyway. Um, Christmas vacation, when the head of the company is asking Clark uh, to talk about the. the crunch enhancer and he goes in layman's mm -hmm. terms none of that jargon bs that nobody understands <laughs> so like if you keep that and still you can boil that down to the kiss method of anything you know it's got to be yeah. believable it's you can't weigh the audience down with so much gobbledygook or jargon that the audience is confused because now we've bored them and now we've confused them what so you if can't, you could you can't do that you can do it if you can make them think that they actually understand it and they don't. 
I mean, if you're if you're good enough at spinning it in such a way that they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And there's total gaps because you know you've written around it, but it ain't that easy to do. <laughs> it is because there's a there's a real danger of coming off as condescending, like you're talking to exactly, a child. exactly. You know, so Interstellar did some of that, especially when dealing around time distortion stuff. They yes. tackled a really difficult subject, and actually, the average person went, oh, okay, I can understand that. They do that like, all the time. Kind of with yeah, you have to find a way to keep it cool. That's what right. I like about right. watching them do magic and illusions is that they they do that all the time. They 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 sit there and explain it to you in very simple terms. What they're what they're really doing is 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 talking the circle so that they can pull the thing off. I mean, it's it's kind of part of their methodology that I really like. I mean, it's really interesting. And every yeah, time I'm like, so God damn it, how come I can't two, figure that out? The false yeah. <laughs> light of hand, it's all distraction. Um, yeah. And we as writers do that all the time, you know. Yeah, the visual storytelling. As I'm putting the card problem. with my other hand. Yeah. 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 So they have what? all their great magic tricks like, see, yeah. uh, let's get <laughs> together now. <laughs> so, How so does the, that get in my nose? I don't know. The one thing that makes it scary is the idea that some of the stuff where they take these weapons, they take these scientific ideas that are very real and they take that next step and they create these, you know, mega weapons. And you're like, oh, that's cool. Wait, DARPA's probably already researching that shit right now. And then it takes <laughs> it to a whole new level of mind tomfoolery. You got to think a lot uh, of uh, John Ringo's Black Tide Rising series. Is his, you said medical. John Ringo's Black Tide Rising series. It's a realistic zombie virus idea. And when he came up with this idea and he ran it by somebody at the uh, um, CDC, someone had contact, the CDC guys were, were freaking horrified. They're like, why would you even talk about something like that? Because he was in a, in a realm of possibility. It's it's all about dual expression, making one virus then express another virus. And it's, it's, it's quote unquote impossible, but they're actually working on it. It'll probably eventually get kicked. Uh, yeah, and and that, was, that was a great hard science fiction example of something that his his uh, MacGuffin, his premise is not something completely outside of the realm of possibility. Jonathan yeah, Mayberry is really good at that with the Joe Ledger series too. Jonathan Mayberry does a lot of uh, real science and different stuff in there. It's really fascinating and interesting. Um, it's similar to it's similar to the Monster Hunter Inter International in some ways, except for it goes more in the science direction than Larry tends to in his. And that's what's interesting. But they both they both have uh, the teams investigating these paranormal creatures, but they. Uh, uh, Jonathan's are a little more techno thriller type aimed, whereas Larry's are a little more urban fantasy. So it's interesting uh, the approach uh, to vary the to compare the two approaches. Brad Thor did something like that, where I think it was I'm pretty sure it was Brad Thor that did it, where he combined like the rabies virus and some poison from a snake, and he gave a plausible explanation for vampirism and why the lore started. Uh, not yeah. the, the Brad Stoker version, but just the idea like they were afraid of the water and the reflections and all of that stuff is how the lore started. I thought it was pretty interesting. That, see, I and I like that's one of my favorite things about when somebody can take it and and science the as as Mark Watney would say, science the crap out of it. Uh, you know, it it you take it and and you think you know people just have for years have been relying on the same trope with the vampires or the werewolves or the whatever uh, you know zombies and. And and then somebody comes on with these unique twists that actually feels like, wow, this could really happen, you know? Because really, when you think about it, that's one of the things about me why I'm really picky about zombie stories. The whole idea of it is so ridiculous that when you, if you think about it too hard, it doesn't make any sense until you get the science behind it, and then it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. I think, like The Last of Us, I think did that very well. 
You know, I the game is the apocalypse. Brian, I'd like to introduce you to my zombie series. Nick, are you referring to the, the Last of Us, the movie series, or are you talking about the video game franchise? Both. It's the same thing, probably. Both. Yeah. It's, it's based on a fungus. Yeah. And that happens in nature right now. Yeah, with ants, right? So, ants, yeah. And now I guess there's something that's affecting deer. Oh, yeah, the zombie deer. Yeah. The zombie seen... deer? Yeah, there's some kind I'm of... I'm glad there's... I live in this age now, because this shit's ants. weird. Spiders. <laughs> yeah, there's some real zombie stuff that I've been seeing that is kind of interesting. That's kind of basically that effect, but but yeah, that's salt. That's salt. In a, in a uh, steamy room, you got to mix the two. Don't worry, because if you run fast enough, their their legs will fall apart, and uh, and then they won't be able to catch you. So you you can well, still get away. when I read World War Z, it's like they they when I was reading the accounts, I'm like, okay, so. You can't generate your own heat. Therefore, you can't move. Once you get too cold, everything will lock up. Why doesn't everybody just go north where it's snowing? And that's what ended up happening in those accounts of World War Z. I was like, man, why didn't they just... This book should have been like three pages. Yeah, we noticed the problem. Then we went north. The end. Yeah. (laughs) Then you wouldn't have the book. Just like you you couldn't have uh, Lord of the Rings if they just rode the birds. In the beginning, yeah, just right. get on the eagles and just drop it in, Kobe. Yeah, I mean that's where if you do it well, like ET, eagle up a bird. ET, uh, a movie that I remember loving as a kid, but it totally falls apart when you think about the fact. Okay, if he could fly at the end, why didn't he fly at the beginning? Whole thing falls apart. But but the, the way they did it was so brilliant that by introducing that at the end, you you don't go back and think about it because you're so moved by the you're so in love with ET at that point, and that's that's the genius of the writing of that that story. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a little bit of hand waving going on there, and, the, and yeah. we didn't care. We didn't they, care they at that point. To the point. At that point, you don't care because you're just oh, thank God, ET lived. <laughs> oh, I remember falling like a oh, falling like a baby at the end. Oh of that yeah, movie. when ET died. Oh my God. <laughs> I remember crying at the end of ET, and then bawling when I saw Gremlins, which I was way too young to have seen Gremlins, but my parents I'm were out. like, "Oh, it's got these little Ewok things." I'm outside spreading. I'm outside spreading uh, Reese's pieces randomly in the yard, hoping to attract an alien and go out and check on them. You know. All I had was Skittles. I did the best I could. I'm like, I hope they live through. Way to spoil a 40 year old movie, Nick. My, my mom's like, hey, hey, I, I, I wanna, what are you doing with those Reese's pieces? That, You're going through them awful fast. Where you've been. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about about the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, in the wide sort of world of. Uh, hard sci-fi there's definitely room to drill down to specific like subcategories the different tech that's out there the mega structures and all that but clearly at some point in time if you take enough presumptions if this then this then this there's a line where at a certain point in time you're no longer hard sci-fi so where do you guys see that line as well i got accused with my book of uh having the hard sci-fi side, and then I have the other stuff that's a lot more fluffy. Uh, And so I think I'm kind of in that middle ground that you're talking about where it's kind of hard to tell. Yeah, you've got some things in there that are more the fantastic stuff, and then you've got the hard sci-fi. Okay, Uh, it's just a matter of how you present it and how you mix it and what you can get away with on that. Yeah, you know, here's a good example. It's not the best hard sci-fi in in a literal sense, but Interstellar. 
All right. I could buy into that story until the third act. And that's where he went off. That's when it went off the rails because they got into all this mystical crap. And it was like a completely different movie. I think if you're at a certain point where where everything still makes sense and you're tied into it, you can afford to kind of go there as long as it feels natural to where you are. But if you go off a complete cliff and it, it takes a complete turn, that's where you lose everybody. Yeah, I think that line is you need to have the space opera sort of an element in there as a background the whole time to balance that. So yeah. it isn't that big switch like you were saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the only exactly. the only premise they ever dropped about it was the one thing. The only thing that can go backwards in time is gravity. And I'm like, when did they write that law? I think I missed something. Yeah, I, that's <laughs> I don't remember that in the the laws of physics. No, I think they skipped over that one. I think I missed that in eighth grade or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, there's a, there's some really there's some pitfalls in there because yeah, hard sci-fi. You want to use the scientific method, come up with your premise, your theory, hypothesis, and you start doing your field work and all that stuff. But it, when it gets to the point where it feels like you're writing a technical manual or a textbook, I think that's where you're going to lose people. And I think well, it's true, but also you, you got to have a little little wiggle room in the hard part of hard sci-fi. Sure you do, but I think I think there's ways to take a real scientific conceit and make it a through line for the story that connects into what you're doing that makes it still feel grounded in the real even when you're completely off the off the reservation. And I think that that's a trick that you can do is you use enough real stuff that it ties into something. It, it, it people don't mind because they love yeah. the what if. They love the what if. The, that's why we all great example most of, that. of us came to sci-fi that's the best for that part of our species. That's the best yeah. part of being a human being. The what if. We love the mystery. Exactly. We love that the, great aspect the of for a, a hard sci-fi series would be the uh, the 2001 universe. There's four books that were written in it. And they're all credible attempts to do as much hard science fiction as possible, especially considering how old the original one was. And each book progressively continues to be hard science fiction, but with more and more super tech built into it as it goes down the road. Yeah. You know, By the time yeah. you get to the last one, you're a well, more than 200 years into the future. And the, the premise of it is they find the astronaut that was thrown into space by Hal and revive him, like after being floating in space for hundreds of years. So you obviously have an awful lot of anything that looks like fantasy to us, but they approach it from the angle of any sufficiently advanced society, you know, appears as magic to a less advanced society. So it's still yeah. hard science fiction, but anybody who picked up that book would probably call it more like, you know, space opera by the, by the way yeah. it appears. Yeah, but, you know, I, I love – one of my favorite things is when I hear somebody, like some general public saying, oh, I, I hate that sci-fi crap. I love to ask them, okay, well, what are your favorite movies? And they always name a sci-fi film because there are so oh, – yeah. you know, there's so many big sci-fi films. They don't hate sci-fi. There are certain things that they don't like, but it's I, it's just one of my favorite ways to kind of prove disprove that theory. When people, oh, I hate that sci-fi stuff. Well, no, you don't. You love all the movies. <laughs> and, the, and the TV shows. Exactly. We, we're big fans of the Alien franchise, which make you happy, Brian. Um, so we watched everyone outside of, you know, just the Alien movies. And then we were here with a pad and paper like, okay, chronologically, where does this fit into the timeline? How does this work? And we're, oh, we're little don't. amateur scientists over here doing that. We drive ourselves batshit. Like, I was oh, gonna wait, say with Alien, back. with Alien, you'll really drive yourself batshit because there was nobody. That's the one thing advantage you have with Star Trek and Star Wars is somebody was there keeping track of that stuff. 
to do that well, world except build. the last three with, Star Wars with, movies. With, with Fox, with Alien and Predator, they were both, they were just trying to, like, oh, we got to compete with another franchise to get up in this, this thing. And they were throwing it out there, and then they let, they didn't keep a gatekeeper involved. So things got to kind of get yeah. mixed up. I've spent a lot of time when I do universe. those books. Put Lance Hendrickson in it. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I try to do a lot with the short storybooks of trying to find ways we could plug some of those holes to at least like add some plausibility to it. But yeah, some 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 of it's a lost cause. <laughs> yeah. Except for the comic book Predator Cold War, which was amazing. Well, that, that's Wars why they have a... Too. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but AVP is a completely different universe from Aliens and from Predator. Okay, and yeah. and there there are certain timelines. There, there's so, so many separations now because they just can't make it work any other way. So I, one of my favorite shirts as a kid was the Waylon Yatani Group T-shirt. Yeah, I, I wore that thing until I got too big to wear it, and I still. I was a teenager. I had a I had a Nostromo hat at some point. I lost it during a move. It really kills me because it was a limited edition. But ah, uh, yes, like my hand solo blaster. <laughs> I, I ended up having I had one from the 80s and then I don't know what happened to it I grew up it got sold probably my mom got rid of it or whatever I ended up yeah, finding a that happens. the heretics the heretics parents. where it was like yeah, <laughs> the remake that was like orange and white so I was like oh, okay I'm going to use my modeling uh, painting skills here I'm going to weather it up and all that and it still makes the old cannon noise like choo choo yeah, mine doesn't make the noise, but I did buy one. I did buy one years later, but yeah. What happened to what happened to mine is the worst nightmare story. Uh nothing to do with hard sci-fi, but I was I was being a silly kid and and we were checking in for a flight and they said, "Do you have anything we should, you know, be aware of or dangerous or whatever?" Well, I have this. I pull out my hand solo blaster which I was carrying on the plane. Oh, you can't take that on the plane and I I believed them and then by the time somebody in my family came back to get it, the, they they it was gone. So somebody at the airline yeah. stole it. So somebody gave it to their child. They couldn't find exactly. it on the shelf. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So like when those border protection seizes your beer, they destroy it one at a time while watching a movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so James, no, you've, been we, a little bit, you've been a little bit quiet. So, so what do you have to say on the subject? So, you know, going back to what Mark was alluding to with Clark's third law, I, I love uh, kind of blending the, hard sci-fi with kind of the esoteric stuff. Uh, so for instance, in the, the story I got in, in Villains Arise, I deep dove into all the Apollo program and everything Artemis was doing and all SpaceX and everything. And then I threw in like some semi-plausible aliens actually on the moon. Uh, so I love just kind of that taking that same mindset and uh, applying it to the less... Uh, let, the more fantastical, less scientific, more advanced type, indistinguishable from magic. But here's a couple of things that might make it plausible. I love playing with that, and I love movies that play with that too. So, you know, you know, like to the expanse or, uh, you know, Firefly, when you get to the Serenity and the Origin of the Reavers and stuff like that. That's always fun to me. I like taking it like even a, a further one step sideways mm -hmm. in uh, reality a little bit. That's always fun. Okay. That, that could be interesting. Um, 
Have you ever, when you're writing, added your own laws to science that you posit as the All next the step in your simulation? Oh my God, yes. Yes. All the time. All the time. Yes. Or, or robotic laws, for that matter. I have, I've added we a We are bunch gods of, of our own universe. Laws. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. What about you, John? Yeah, it's like, how exactly does that uh, travel through space work? I like the idea of having uh, difficulties and consequences and penalties with the tech. Uh, even if you're making something up, that's one of the things that helps make that more believable. Um, now, the world kind of imposes those penalties on us, like, well, I don't believe in gravity. Well, yeah, jump off a building and you might become a believer really quick. Uh, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, so there are these consequences out there. And so when we make up those aspects uh, in a hard science fiction story, having those penalties and difficulties built into it, I think makes it a lot more believable and is easier to weave in without having to explain, well, yeah, you just jump in your ship and poof, you're at this other planet. Um, I like having those challenges and difficulties because it gives more to build a story around. I think what's fun about digging into the science, for example, in Shortcut, the conceit was we don't want to have any FTL in this thing. We want it to be real space travel. So we went to the science, science experts and said, okay, find me a way to do something like FTL without doing FTL. And they used quantum entanglement and this thing called polaritons, which are real and really being studied. And they said, if you extrapolate what the possibilities point to for this, you could literally take a physical body and replace it with another physical body in space and move things across space faster. And that's what the conceit of the whole book ended up being, is short, what a shortcut is. You take an empty parcel of space, then you take the ship and everything in it, and you, you jump it over there. And you bring the empty space back to where it left. And it created this whole possibility of getting to Mars in, in hours or, 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 you know, days instead of years and all of these kind of things. It's fun when you play with that science. You get the chance to look at what, what might be in ways that, you know, feel closer to reality. And it's, it's, it's fun to play with. Do you ever worry? Was that? Alan Dean Foster had a, his KT drive, I think it was. It was a, basically yes. a projected gravity field. So you'd project this field in front of you, a foot in front of you, and blink it. Just keep, so it's like the, the classical having the carrot in front of the horse and makes the horse go forward. The ship would be drawn yeah. towards gravity faster, 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 faster. And it's a pretty novel idea. If you can project a gravity field, it would work quite well. It, you know, and he even had at one point where they accidentally, they built him on a planet and they couldn't turn him on. And one story was these terrorists turned one on a planet. That basically tore a hunk out of the planet, these things. They were so dangerous. But that was one of the That's his, one of my favorite things writes, about... About Alan is that he writes all these tie-ins that everybody knows and all this stuff, and so mm -hmm. he writes a lot of stuff what people would call the soft science fiction or the stuff that 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 doesn't really lean towards the plausibility. But when you read his original stuff, man, he's really mm -hmm. grounded in science and all this stuff, and he writes some really interesting stuff with that. Oh, the whole yeah. Flink series are all great stuff. Ice Rigger, oh, yeah. more great stuff. He he likes writing pretty crunchy hard science fiction actually. He really does, and he does a really good job. Did you read the the Quadrail series? I love that Quadrail series. It's mm -hmm. a great kind of a large detective with a really interesting kind of space elevator kind of concept at the middle of it. He's yeah. one of the few authors that if he published his shopping list, I'd probably read it. He's you know he's just he really knows his trade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, well, we have uh, run out of time. There's clearly more to talk about this topic, so we're going to do some follow-on episodes that we will drill down. We have some scientists that are going to come on and get nerdy with us that had to reschedule today, so we'll, we'll definitely be back to this topic. But before we let you go, we're going to give everyone who's here today a chance to talk about what they're writing and how people can find them. So we're going to start with you, James, because you're in the Brady Bunch corner. <laughs> so uh, my newest uh, series dropping in April is called Pandora Squad, as you see off my shoulder here. Uh, it is kind of an action sci-fi. I took a a hard sci-fi premise and really just kind of uh, went wild with it. So it's basically Dirty Dozen meets Stargate SG-1. And then I you know, had to come up with a really fun... Uh, deviations to the laws of reality to make some things work, including uh, quantum metaphysics, which kind of relies on quantum entanglement and brain hacking. Uh, so that's my newest series coming out in April, and that's kind of what I've been really pushing hard Very on. Cool. Reminds me of that that meme where you see the uh, the guy that played um, Iron Man, and it's like, when did you become an astrophysicist? Last night. Last yeah. night. Did Robert Downey oh. Jr.? Yeah, yeah, there we go. That guy. Damn. That guy. That guy. <laughs> that unknown that guy. guy who played Iron Man. <laughs> Just that guy who made the entire Marvel franchise work, you know. Right. <laughs> Not only that, but I included your zombie ants in the form of zombie spiders and uh, the whole <sighs> nature nature documentary about the tarantula hawk wasps that, you know, parasitic and lay their eggs in giant spiders. And, uh, well... Spiders. Yeah, they they fight giant, you know, reanimated spider husks. Thank you, Cornell's, you know, scientific program trying to make nanotech using dead spider husks. I just made them the size of VWs, so because that was fun. <laughs> okay, who needs sleep? All right, John. Oh, James, where can they find exactly. you on the internet? <laughs> uh, you can find me on my website, halfacrepond.com, or on the Instagram at j.e.pitman, or on the Facebooks at jepitmanwrites. And all of that will be in the show notes. All right, what about you, John? What are you working on right now? Actually, I have just finished up a project. I'm looking at another project. Uh, I'm going to grab a couple of friends and tag team Hillbilly this weekend and uh, talk to him about a possible trilogy. So I'm having a lot of fun kicking ideas around for that. It's going to be a new science fiction thing uh, in a game property. Uh, it's a lot of fun writing in established universes, kind of like what I did with the Four Horsemen. Uh, it's really cool to have these other playgrounds to uh, do stuff in. So I'm going to be uh, trying to figure out which direction I'm going, whether it's going to be another self-published thing or if I'm going to do a trilogy with him or uh, some other interesting project. So right now is a big crossroads for me. Uh, but you can find me. Uh, my blog is johnmolson.blogspot.com. Uh, if you search for me on Facebook, uh, that M in the middle of my name is important because there's like a billion John Olsons out there. Uh, but if you put the M in the middle, it, it's a lot easier to find me. Uh, <laughs> lots of social media, uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook are probably the easiest to uh, locate me on. So you said you're writing for Hillbilly. That's three Ravens. So are we talking Starflight, the universe they have the IP for, or Steve Jackson's um, Car Wars? Oh, this is Starflight that I was going to talk to him about. Uh, a friend of mine that I uh, work with for the day job is doing some of the Car Wars stuff, and that's uh, they're having a lot of fun with that too. Nice. 
So uh, what about you, Brian? Uh, where can listeners find you, and what are you working on right now? Well, BrianThomasSchmidt.net, B-R-Y-A-N. Um, and, you know, pretty much Brian Thomas S. on most of the social media or Brian Thomas Schmidt, um, uh, which is Instagram and TikTok. Um, what I'm working on right now, I'm actually at a crossroads like John. I'm actually working on my first noir thriller. It's kind of a, there's no sci-fi, no, uh, no speculative stuff. It's set in the Philippines based on my experiences there, um, with, uh, I'm, I'm engaged to a Filipino and they're actually coming here in, in 44 days to, to get married and live here. So, uh, based on all of that stuff, so that's a lot of fun. And then I'm going to write the next John Simon thriller and get that out book four. And, uh, then I'm going to write a sequel to shortcut. So I've got, I've got a plate lined up. Sleep. Who needs it? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Now I love what I do. So it doesn't, who, who needs sleep? <laughs> All right, Mark, what are you working on and uh, how can they find you? And as usual, dear listener, everything will be in the show notes. Well, uh, you can give me the world, www.worldmaker, one word, worldmaker.us. That's my main website. My blog's available there, too. I'm doing a lot less than I used to on Facebook. It's easier just to post to a blog and then, you know, copy it off that way. Uh, but you can find me on Facebook as Mark Laundry author. Uh, my Patreon page is at uh, patreon.com slash Mark H. Laundry. Uh, I'm not sure how I got the middle initial in there, but it's there anyway. Uh, right now, I'm working on finishing up that new uh, book I told, I told you about. It's actually going to be part of a trilogy, and it's called The uh, First Time Anybody Said to Anybody. So on you, uh, Brian, it is called The Umbra Code, and the first book is Zero Day, and it's just about finished. And my blog uh, followers, actually, through Patreon, have been enjoying free chapters, and I've been writing that. Uh, anything I write that's not shared with somebody else, I'll be posting all individual chapters as stuff comes out, so you get free previews. It may not look quite like awesome. it does when I write it when it's finished because I'm cancer, so <laughs> things can get really wild and really fun. Beyond <laughs> um, that, I have uh, the next Four Horsemen book will be the uh, um, oh, what was it? Ashes of Empire of uh, Ashes of Republic. It will be the last book in the uh, Phoenix Initiative series before the next one begins. Uh, the role playing game is almost done. Uh, Four Horsemen role playing game rules of engagement. John Osborne is finishing that up right now. A book is coming out in concert with that called uh, Caveat Emptor. That is a fan-inspired book. We had part of the Kickstarter was the company idea for a book, so we wrote that book together. And then I also have another space series kind of IP that I'm working on, kind of life after the Borders of the Universe thing. But that's still a few years away, so no announcement on that one. So, again, why sleep? You know, it's overrated. overrated. What was the name <laughs> of that thriller you were talking You were talking about something earlier. What was the name of that? That's the Umber Code. That's going to be a it's, a, it's okay. a, it's a, um, techno thriller with, uh, aspects of like societal collapse mixed in. So there's a lot going on. I'd probably call that fairly hard science fiction, but it's, it's really near future. So you know, it yeah, it doesn't get too deep into the woods with that. Yep. That'll be, uh, I'm going to be looking for how I'm going to publish that. I haven't decided yet. Self-publish. I might talk to Hillbilly about it. Uh, it won't be Chris with him and that's nothing to do with Chris. It's just, that he doesn't do that sort of, um, yeah, he doesn't have an imprint for that, so I'm gonna farm it around, see what I decide. Awesome. Nice, and uh, this is the part, dear listener, where I remind you if there was anything you wanted us to cover when we come back for that second episode, because we're gonna be planning that. Just uh, hit us up in the comments or use any of our social medias, and you can find us. And uh, do remember to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right book, and it really does make a difference to uh, to new authors out there for you to leave reviews. Uh, it's social proof for other people that might be thinking about it and on the fence. So if you like authors and you like their stuff and you want them to write more of it, reviews can make a difference. 
especially when a publisher is trying to decide if they're going to green light the next book in the volume or the next trilogy or whatever, like your engagement helps them. So if you wait, sometimes you miss out. With that being said, you can find us on our link tree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E, link tree slash Blasters and Blades podcast. Again, link tree slash Blasters and Blades podcast, where we link to all the things, the bit shoots, the rumbles, the YouTubes, the Twitters, our email, Blasters and Blades podcast at gmail.com for professional purposes only. Or you can uh, find our Facebook group and our new Facebook page over on the link tree. And most importantly, for the non-professional emails, you can contact Madam Stabby Stab on her Instagram, Twitter, or emails. She wants all the hate mail. So far, no one's been brave enough. But one of these days, you will gird your loins and do it. I have faith that you're going to make her make her cry or she'll make you cry. I'm not sure how that's going to work. But uh, be brave, people. <laughs> be brave. And with that, you can find us on our website, anchor.fm slash blasters and blades. Again, anchor.fm slash blasters and blades, where for as little as 99 cents a month, you can help keep the lights on. These episodes are not free to produce, and every little bit helps. Or you can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com slash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it's for the podcast, and I will keep my co-hosts duly caffeinated. They will drink until the coffee brand coffee runs out of stock. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So what are you enjoying as you're packing to move? I know you're not sleeping as much, Stabby, now that you're packing. Now that you're yeah. packing. I was packing while we were doing this podcast, I guess. <laughs> so if you kept seeing me look down, I have been I've been dreading packing my desk. And so I figured since I'm sitting here, I put a box right here next to me and I've just slowly been just dropping things in the box because it needs to be done. Um, but what I am drinking out of my beautiful mermaid Starbucks cup is a white claw. <laughs> Yeah, that's how that packing is going. <laughs> <laughs> but if you do want to go to Coffee Brand Coffee, our affiliate sponsor, uh, and use the code Podcast Grunt, links are in the comments. Uh, we do get a little bit of a kickback. It does help fund. So far through that affiliate program, we're up to six episodes paid for uh, as we broke it down. So that's a winner. Um, and with that they being have said, hot cocoa too. Yeah, my mom's been enjoying their um, their marshmallow hot cocoa. She's been going nuts for it. I'm probably gonna have to buy her more. Why did I end up having to be to pay for it? I don't know. Somehow that happened. They have hot cocoa. They have coffee. They have tea. Um, they have cold brew bags, if you like cold brew coffee. But they also have saltwater taffy and chocolate-covered espresso beans. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. They got it. They even got stuff for John. I mean, they got the cocoa. He's, he's set. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Thank cocoa? <laughs> Did you put espresso in? Co well, if you put espresso in cocoa, that's just a mocha. Yes. What's wrong? What's okay. wrong with that? Just drop the chocolate covered espresso bean in there, and you're, you've got the same effect, probably. <laughs> there you go. All right. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For my crazy co-host, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. And speaking of hard science fiction, there is one line that you probably shouldn't cross. There is a scientist who decided for the heck of it to see if he could turn Mountain Dew into wine. So he is brewing a Mountain Dew wine and tracking the journey. That. Yeah, he's tracking the journey over there on the face uh, Facebook. So I just it, it reminds me of that line from Jurassic Park. They spent so much time seeing if they could do it. They never asked themselves if they should. 
Life finds a way. <laughs> Life finds a way. All right. <laughs> Thank you guys for coming. This was fun, and I'm serious. We're going to have to Thank schedule you. a second one. Les Johnson was uh, not pleased that he had to reschedule, but life happens, and, and we'd like him back, too, for this. So, All right. You guys have a wonderful evening. You, too. Guys, uh, 